I think the stigmatizing side of health crises has a, a long narrative. There's some variants depending on how it's conveyed, what kind of media platform, but there's also something constant about that idea of looking for, for someone to blame or having a scapegoat. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. A curious hallmark of the COVID-19 pandemic is the backlash that it has spawned. Right-wing politicians and their media allies are emboldened as they rage against masks and vaccines, spout conspiracy theories, and delegitimize doctors and scientists. Republican governors in Florida and Texas, where infections are raging among children, are blocking schools from mandating that children wear masks, a simple public health measure. Those same states are reporting that their ICUs are full, many of them with children. This type of behavior is not new. The Anti-Vaccination League of America was founded in 1908, just as a vaccine against smallpox, a disease that had killed millions, was being mandated by some states, while mandates were prohibited by other states. Martin Halliwell tells the story of America's social and political struggles around public health in his new book, American Health Crisis, A Hundred Years of Panic, Planning, and Politics. Halliwell is a professor of American studies at the University of Leicester in the UK. I began by asking Halliwell to put the COVID pandemic into context, how it differs and is similar to other public health crises that America has faced. Um, I'd be happy to, David. When I started working on the book um, around 2014-15, my initial plan was to um, end with the opioid crisis, which was starting to crest at that time in the late in the Obama administration, obviously took on uh, um, a prominence during during the early years of the Trump administration before COVID started to dominate headlines and, and people's lives. And the parallel there was um, between the 1910s during the Woodrow Wilson administration and the rise in opioids in the early 21st century. In the 1910s, the government was very concerned about the spread of illicit um, Uh, opiates at the time and put in some legislation to prevent that spread. So I saw a a parallel there. But of course, uh, COVID caught up with all of our lives, but with the book as well. So I end the book with a a coda, uh, which I wrote in in October of last year, um, just as the book was in press. Um, And of course, the problem with writing about contemporary history is that it's always changing. It's a developing story. So the comments I made made last autumn all stand, but there are certain um, variances, you know, that have come to light um, both in Europe and around the world and in the US uh, this year, which um, may have given different nuances to it. But the parallel that most... um, media outlets and um, historians draw is between the influenza pandemic of 1918-19 uh, and the uh, the opioid crisis as well, almost uh, uh, exactly a century apart and with some of the same characteristics in terms of there being three waves, in terms of the spread across the Atlantic, but other parts of the, the globe as well. But there are key differences as well. Um, 
COVID is uh, remarkable for its high level of transmissibility. Um, and while the influenza uh, virus uh, mutated in the battlefields of Europe uh, in the 1910s and arguably made it more virulent when it came back to the shores of the US in um, autumn 1918, um, we've seen various uh, variants of COVID uh, spread around the world. And I don't think anyone last year would have predicted that a Delta variant would be more transmissible, uh, more widespread uh, than those that we saw in early 2020. Um, the other parallel, and I think it's both a similarity and a distance, is around public health information as well. Um, both the influenza pandemic and COVID, we've seen a lot of uh, disinformation, but also an unfolding story in the media and in terms of what public health authorities uh, could recommend at any particular point in time, you know, would be the best kind of practice. And there's been um, both disinformation, but also an evolving story about um, mask wearing, about hand washing and hygiene, about travel, um, and a number of different things, you know, depending on which side of the aisle you sit, it's either an evolving story or it's highly charged in terms of um, affecting people's lives, arguably their civil liberties at times, and doing what's best for the community or the nation is sometimes at odds with what's best for an individual or, or a family. So the similarities there, but but some differences as well. And what are the, uh, when you say there's similarities, I mean, I think one of the most um, shocking things going on now in the pandemic is this, you know, what some people are calling an infodemic, this sure. pandemic of uh, hoaxes, misinformation, uh, and then the conspiracy theories. Uh, and there's also social unrest and political instability that um, is going on. Does that have precedent uh, as well, perhaps in, in the 1918 pandemic or, or else at other times? It does to a degree, but I think we need to, to, to say from the outset that in the late 1910s, the dominant forms of media would be newspapers and to a certain extent photographs. Um, so the influenza pandemic was the first epidemic caught in photography. And there was a wonderful exhibition at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2018, charter, uh, marking a, a centenary uh, in, in photographs. And I hadn't really thought about that. We all think about the Vietnam War being the first filmed war, but the influenza pandemic was the first photo properly photographed um, uh, epidemic or pandemic. So media has, has shifted dramatically, so obviously no social media. And I think the, um, the effect of social media, both because of its brevity on Twitter and, and other platforms, and also the speed that it travels. Uh, when we think about infodemics, it's about what we can call the touch of words, you know, how words travel, how they can take on a life of their own, almost a viral life. So that's the key difference in terms of me development in media over over a hundred years but there was some let's say misinformation in the 1910s um obviously it was called the spanish flu commonly uh which was in itself misinformation because um spain was relatively free of 
the influenza, not not entirely, but it wasn't as virulent there as it was in other European countries and, and the US. And it was called the Spanish flu because um, the Spanish newspapers were the first to write about it, Spain being a neutral country during World War One. Um, but it took on that that name almost in a stigmatizing way. And I think that idea of looking for scapegoats or casting blame is certainly something that's happened uh, during our time, during COVID, uh, whether it's blaming uh, the Chinese or um, whether it was a lab leak in Wuhan, that's taken on you know, a life of its own in terms of Asian Americans um, suffering from um, hate crime and um, insults and um, other forms of, of, of torment over the last year or so. So I think the stigmatizing side of um, health crises has a, a long narrative. There's some variance um, depending on how it's conveyed, what kind of media platform, um, but there's also something constant about that idea of looking for, for someone to blame um, or, or having a scapegoat. Have epidemics where they've broken out elsewhere, be it Ebola in Africa or, you know, any number of uh, public health crises been met with the same level of conspiracy theories. And then, you know, the anti-vax movement is, well, this is a disease with a vaccine. Uh, at the time that Ebola broke out in 2014, there was no vaccine, although there is sure. one now. Um, I'm just wondering if, you know, why we're seeing this now. I mean, yes, there's social media, but what is it about a health crisis that uh, spawns this kind of, you know, uh, incredible tsunami of misinformation? Um, I mean, there's two ways of looking about uh, at this, I think. And one is, um, I think ours is an age of what Naomi Klein calls colliding crises, and that's something that Joe Biden has has talked about both in his uh, presidential run and and since he's been a president that there are certain collisions. Um, and Biden talks about the economy, about uh, the pandemic, about race and environment as well. So it may be that crises have sped up, or that there's more collisions now than there were. Early, early in the 20th century. Um, and those collisions in themselves give rise to uh, misinformation and, and, and conspiracies. The other way of looking at it is that um, you could say that with the other waves, um, viral waves in the 21st century, we've been lucky. We were lucky with, with Zika, uh, with Ebola to a certain extent. Um, they could have um, been transmitted more widely geographically um, or mutated more, more more quickly. And, and that didn't happen. Uh, President Obama was um, uh, on record saying that he feared that there would be another virulent um, epidemic very soon. Um, and that didn't seem to be heeded by the Trump administration, who was very clean, keen to blame the Obama administration for not having enough um, equipment stockpiled, etc. So we have a war of words about who's to blame again. Um, but COVID, um, sh we should have done better as an international community, both to predict uh, something like this arising 
but also having the surveillance and mitigation strategies in place to try and um, act very quickly. I think those those weeks in January and February of 2020, no nation really um, acted as quickly or as um, as deliberately as it might have done. And those lost weeks um, have given rise to both a higher death toll than was necessary, but also I think a ripple effect over the last 18 months, you know, about always playing catch up with the virus rather than being on top of it. One of the most striking things about the current pandemic is how disproportionately impacted uh, people of color and other marginalized groups are. Uh, how unequal is their access to care and information? Talk a little bit about how public health crises exacerbate inequality and um, and again, how today compares to past crises. Um, yeah, it's, it's a complex situation and it's something I think I would uh, spend more time on in um, the the, the section on COVID in, in, in the book, if I was to write it again, partly because obviously issues around racial justice um, in the wake of George Floyd um, and Black Lives Matter have have come to the, the surface in parallel with uh, COVID in, in, in many ways. Um, but I was struck with that phrase, which was commonly used in 2020, that we're all in it together, which suggests that the virus levels out, that it has the same effect um, in different places and amongst different demographics, uh, true to an extent, but also untrue to a large extent as well. And that depends, obviously, whether you're living in a in a, a small inner city apartment or uh, a, a large suburban house, um, whether it's class or finance or or luck. I think the way in which uh, we've experienced uh, COVID has depended on place. Um, but also financial state status, etc. Uh, in terms of race, it's interesting that, uh, and there's a longer story here um, around uh, the way in which science is sometimes colorblind. Uh, talks about universals, uh, but where there's a often a hidden racial politics. You know where the, the universal is 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 somehow universal white, even though that's not said. So I think there's a racial politics of of science, which has a, a long uh, story and is institutionalized. There's also attempts to think around about minority health care that have a longer arc as well. So the National Institutes of Health added a new institute that focuses on minority health and health disparities in 2010, so um, a decade ago. Um, but there are other questions around inclusion and exclusion when we when we talk about public health and uh, facilities. Uh, obviously, the longer story of segregation in hospitals, which was tackled in the 1960s, but still has some resonances. Um, and insurance exclusions as well. So if we take um, Hurricane Harvey, uh, which you know affected the Houston area in 2017, uh, it was harder for non-whites to put their lives back together because of the insurance they had compared with uh, white neighbours or um, other Houstonians across the street or across across the block. Um, so there's a whole range of issues that 
means that when we're thinking about health crisis, it can't just be the dramatic moment of emergence. We have to think about um, broader and deeper infrastructural questions and also longer stories, you know, about how people put their lives back together and what that means for a, a family or a community. You you write about the uh, case of the poisoned water supply of Flint, Michigan. Um, why do you include that and, and what stands out to you about that as an American health crisis and, and what it illustrates? So that appears in uh, a chapter looking at uh, pollution and uh, environmental crises. So the book starts with uh, floods, particularly looking at floods in the South. And in the first part of the book, I want to think about both the importance of place, uh, but also the importance of the environment on uh, communities and uh, how health crises are experienced at a community level. Um, each of the chapters are six chapters in all, and each of them are based around three case studies. And uh, the pairing that I, 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 I put in place for the case study around uh, sanitation is um, concerns in the 1930s during the Roosevelt administration about the state of sanitation of public waterworks in Washington, D.C., particularly those um, that federal workers were experiencing at the time. And there was various, various um, debates and discussion, a lot of toing and froing uh, in the mid-1930s about who was responsible for uh, improving sanitation, uh, where the authority lay, where the responsibility lay as well. Interestingly, similar debates in Washington, D.C. in the early part of this century around, around sanitation and, uh, and lead levels in, in water. Obviously, the story around lead in water um, came to um, a crescendo, but also to the, the, the um, national media in the, the mid-2010s when the Flint water crisis came came to light. It's an important case, even though, you know, like Hurricane Katrina, Flint water crisis has been written about widely uh, over the last five years. It's um, a story around racial injustice um, in, the, in, the, in the sense that it hit Flint, uh, largely African-American community. And the reason for that was that there was um, uh, the water supply uh, from the Detroit River was rerouted uh, in order to try and grow the blue economy uh, in, in in Michigan, and that affected Flint uh, probably more than anyone would would have thought. Um, but in terms of uh, pushing for both uh, recognition by uh, local authorities, but also ensuring that the the media were picking up on this, we have to thank uh, both. African American and female activists in, in the city. So there's a there's a gender dynamic as well as a racial one there for Flint. It's really important, I think, on the national stage because uh, it coincided with the um, uh, election debates uh, running up to the the 2016 election. So Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were there. Obama was there. Trump was there, at least um, you know in part, although he didn't really engage. Um, so the way in which it collided with national politics and brought issues around 
uh, infrastructure around race, to a certain extent around gender and region, uh, to the national media, all very important. Mm. Um, the one of the things that goes on with pandemics is that they have they spawn these stealth epidemics, as you describe them diabetes, obesity, things like that, that fester in the shadows of the bigger crisis. Um, what do you see going on right now in that regard? Well, I, I think uh, with, with, within respect to, to, to COVID, um, I think we have to think about data. Um, in the UK, the data that we have um, is uh, those people that have died after testing positive for COVID. Uh, but it may well be um, that um, the, the cause of death was something other, an underlying condition or uh, comorbidities that have led to that. So in an epidemiological sense, it's sometimes hard to uh, tease out the exact cause of death during a, a pandemic such as this one, when clearly health vulnerabilities are those not just in the, the elderly or those within institutions like care homes where uh, the, the virus has spread more quickly, uh, but in the way that COVID might be a tipping point for something that's, that's deeper, uh, that's beneath the surface. I think we can take that as a, as a symbol for what happens in the media or in conversation. You know, we think about tipping points, we think about the visible crises that lead to uh, loss of life or loss of quality of life, rather than the deeper, um, uh, the, the deeper causes or the, the the things that lay lay beneath the surface. Um, so I think with with COVID, I think it's going to take a couple of years after the the pandemic has left us. Ho hopefully, in the next um, um, few weeks, but more likely in the next few months, before we can. We can we can work through the data to try and find um, a, a deeper truth than um, that which we know at the moment. Um, I mean, Anthony Fauci has talked widely in, in the media um, about uh, public health officials can only deal with what's in front of them based on past experience. Mm. And there's a lot that we don't know yet, both about the experience of COVID and uh, minority communities, um, but also um, those deeper comorbidities that um, you know that the the data isn't showing us uh, the full picture about yet. You've described uh, in the history of uh, public health crises and health crises in general that each uh, episode, each you know big experience. Uh, often leads to change, uh, much-needed change. What good can come of the COVID pandemic, and what change do you think needs to happen? What good could come? I think um, international health is, or global health, is something that we have to face in a more responsible way than uh, we've done in, in recent years. Um Clearly, the America First agenda of the Trump administration was about putting American lives first. Of course, every country needs to put uh, its own citizens' lives before others. But there is a debate, um, despite the COVAX initiative, you know, where uh, developed uh, nations with developed economies are, are putting 
money and resources into ensuring that there is uh, um, uh, a body of vaccination uh, vaccines uh, available to, to poorer countries. But there's debates now about uh, both in the UK and in the US about booster jabs for the vulnerable in, in the autumn, well before many countries have had uh, the chance to have one vaccine, let, let alone two. So I think the responsibility for um, the global community is something that COVID could lead us towards. I'm not saying uh, at all that um, administrations in the US uh, and elsewhere weren't thinking about global health before that. Uh, the Clinton administration was, the Obama administration was, but I think COVID will push us to think about uh, health, both in terms of health surveillance, but also in terms of mitigation and uh, equality and inequalities more, more seriously than we have done in, in, in recent years. So that's the one thing I'd point to. I think the, the the danger often with public health in the US is that it's it's often tied to the priorities and sometimes the ideologies of the administration or certainly um, who's dominating Congress at that time. Um, so issues, not, not just controversial issues, uh, for example, around abortion, uh, which obviously is has come to the surface um, again in, in, in recent years. But in terms of thinking about what public health is, what kind of environment it does best in, uh, as well as obviously the financial side of it, is something that I think administrations need to carry over rather than thinking um, you know, about undoing um, the work of one's predecessor in, in, in the White House. It's about thinking about public health as, as something that needs to evolve and needs to improve over the longer term, uh, rather than this boomerang effect that we often have, uh, where we lurch between different priorities as the administration changes. Well, Martin Halliwell, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure talking to you. Martin Halliwell is the author of the new book, American Health Crisis, A Hundred Years of Panic, Planning, and Politics. He's a professor of American studies at the University of Leicester in the UK. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.